Previously on Fun City Cinema. You got money, man? Shit, I'll kill you. Give me your money or I'll bust you up. At which point, Paul Kersey turned, revolver in hand, and shot his mugger dead. <laughs> this was a scene from the 1974 thriller Death Wish, directed by Michael Winner, starring Charles Bronson as Paul Kersey. And while few would call it one of the great New York movies, it is certainly one of the most influential. It spawned a glut of sequels and rip-offs, and also real-life imitators, as well as a way of thinking about crime in cities that persists to this day. It is interesting to see how prescient a lot of the stuff is, or just relevant is still today. Critics were mostly unkind to the film in 1974. The New York Times' Vincent Canby wrote that it, quote, seems to have been made for no reason, except to exploit its audience's urban paranoia and vestigial fascination with violence for its own sake, unquote. The New York Daily News' Rex Reed, however, wrote that he identified with Bronson's character and predicted, quote, people who are tired of being frightened, endangered, and ripped off daily in New York City are going to love Charles Bronson in Death Wish as much as I do, end quote. For once in his life, Rex Reed was right. He's not a Sidney Lumet. He's not a very thoughtful person. He's like an exploitation hustler kind of guy who doesn't really have, he, he's not a serious person. You know, Michael was, there, there's a kind of a cliche idea of the the bullhorn carrying director with a chomping a giant cigar screaming at everybody. It created like a, a genre. It created the vigilante genre. Obviously, it kind of goes off the rails with, with the sequels, especially. How did we get from this first Death Wish, this really gritty, realistic, scary movie, to the rest of the series, which becomes like this ridiculous, uh, you know, uh, an outrageous comic book. You know, he was this very jingoistic, racist, sexist, very, you know, patriarchal, white, aloof, elitist. That's what he was, I mean, to his core and proudly. So the, the whole kind of thesis of his worldview was absolutely the thesis of, of, the, of the worlds he was creating with the Death Wish movies. In fact, there's so much to say about Death Wish and the effect it had on both the people who made it and the people who watched it that we're discussing it over the course of two episodes. And here to help us decode it, we have The New Yorker's Jelani Cobb. I'm, I'm recording now. We have writer and pop culture connoisseur Latoya Ferguson. Yes, it's happening. We have journalism professor and film writer Matt Perget. Did you know that? We have film historian and author Paul Talbot. Well, that's an interesting guy. And we have filmmaker and Death Wish 3 co-star Alex Winter. There's just no part about talking about Death Wish 3 that doesn't make me laugh. I'm Jason Bailey, and this is Fun City Cinema, a podcast about New York and the movies that made it. The city of New York, we've got a system. Not much, but we're fond of it. I love this dirty town. God, I hate this town. Welcome to New York. <laughs> How does it feel to be back in the war zone? In New York City. Wasn't there a vigilante in, in, uh, in Boston about five years ago? New York. New York. Right. What were you doing up in that area? East New York and Belmont. This isn't a neighborhood. It's a war. Fun City Cinema. By Jason Bailey and Mike Hull. This isn't the OK Corral around here. You just flush it right down the fucking toilet. Who's the 
this fucking guy? Get the fuck out of here! We're trying to run a city, not a goddamn democracy. Then why are you here? Well, it's a great city. I missed it. You know, one of the reasons we decided to tell the story of Death Wish this way was that when I was researching it, I was struck by how this film was kind of like a spider web. And if you start following that web, it would take you into all these other corners, these other stories, all of these lives that were impacted by this film's success, directly or not. Take, for example, its star, Charles Bronson. And if you know the name Charles Bronson, you probably know it because of Death Wish and its sequels, and the many films like it that he made in the 1980s. But there was a lot more to Charles Bronson than Paul Kersey. This is Paul Talbot, who wrote two books about the actor. Yeah, Charles Bronson was born in 1921. He was born uh, in extreme poverty. His family was uh, coal miners. So when he was a teenager, he himself uh, was a coal miner. And he was pretty much almost like doomed or destined to stay there forever. He was interesting in painting. He wanted to work on plays, building the sets. Then he realized that the actors got paid a lot more money. So that's what got him into that. So he moved to California, uh, worked at the Pasadena Playhouse, which is live theater, got discovered by people, uh, an agent who specialized in rough looking character actors, did bit roles in television, you know, featured roles, some lead roles in television, uh, low budget movies. But as anyone who's seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood can tell you, at that particular point in movie history, the route to movie stardom was complicated for unconventional leading men like Charles Bronson. A lot of actors like Eastwood were going over to Europe to star in movies. Bronson finally said, okay, I'll do that. He did a movie called Farewell Friend that he did Once Upon a Time in the West, Rider on the Rain, a bunch of movies that were huge over in Europe, but they weren't even released in the United States. He struggled for a lot of years. That's our friend Matt Perget. He was like a, a person that everybody knew, but he had never become a major star. He was one of those actors who had to go to Europe in the 60s to actually get his career back. And does a number of, you know, some of his best films are made in Europe, including Once Upon a Time in the West by Sergio Leone. And he was able to use those European successes to land some leading roles in American movies. So he was doing a lot of action films, uh, again, with Michael Winner, for example, the mechanic, they thought that was going to be a huge hit in the United States, and it was not. It was a huge hit in Europe. Same with The Stone Killer. They thought it was a, a huge hit in the United States. It was not. And then uh, Death Wish happened. And Death Wish was Bronson's actual first and only actual blockbuster in the United States. So Death Wish was very important in terms of breaking Bronson out as a major star in the United States. And it almost was kind of a curse because those movies were what Everybody remembers him for, even though he did a lot of fine work before and after. Part of the problem may have been that he was so convincing in the role of Paul Kersey. Interviewed on the set of Death Wish 2, Michael Winner described him like this. Charles is very good at looking intense and, and as if he means business. He's wonderful at looking as if even in preparation, he is intending to carry it through. He's in fact a very jolly man and a very funny man loves a laugh that's not a character that he puts out on the screen much or even in personal life but quite honestly if you have to spend time with someone on the set as you do to spend time with the charles bronson of the movies would be horrific to spend time with a real man is actually very good fun bronson described the character himself this way his whole approach to life is gentle and he has raised his daughter that way now he has second thoughts and he becomes a killer 
To play him, I draw upon my own feelings. I do believe I could perform this way myself. When the bad reviews for the picture started coming in, Bronson was nonplussed. What I'm doing isn't art, it's entertainment. I'm not in the movies for social reform. I'm in the films for the money. In a New York Times interview, he added, We don't make movies for the critics, since they don't pay to see them anyhow. One thing we have to remember is, you know, when Bronson became a star, he was like 48 years old. You know, he was 52 when he made Death Wish, which is an incredible, incredibly late age for someone to become a star. So, of course, he started getting offered all these different scripts. In a 1976 interview with The Village Voice's Michelle Wallace, Bronson expressed his desire to play a quiet role, or as he put it, uh, to get through the picture with my elbow on the mantelpiece and drink in my hand like a old coward play. Combusting in the room saying, Dennis, anyone? I don't think I could sound like one of those people. Wallace agreed, but here's what's strange about that quote. That's kind of what Charles Bronson tried to do. When Death Wish was a hit, he did what any smart actor would. He used his newfound box office clout to make a series of films that were not like it at all, to keep from getting pigeonholed and to show what he could do. And many of these movies are wonderful. In in 1975, which was the year after Death Wish, he released three terrific movies. He he made Walter Hill's directorial debut, Hard Times, crafting one of his finest performances as a uh, Depression-era bare-knuckle boxer. And he did two films for director Tom Grise, Breakheart Pass and Breakout. The former was an energetic uh, Western mystery adventure, and the latter was this thrilling jailbreak movie co-starring Robert Duvall. The next year, he and wife Jill Ireland, who appeared in all three of those 1975 films, reteamed for the delightful From Noon Till Three, a Western romantic comedy. He played a dashing crime novelist in St. Ives, Wild Bill Hickok in The White Buffalo, and a Russian spy in Don Siegel's Telephone. Some of these films were great. All of them were at least well-made and entertaining. But nobody went to see them. Death Wish was his first blockbuster in the United States and his only blockbuster. Some of the other movies he made uh, were very costly flops almost. For example, uh, Telephone was heavily promoted. That did not do well at all. Uh, The White Buffalo was expected to be a big hit. It was not. That's one thing Michael Winter told me. Michael Winter said, you know, when, by the, when Bronson was doing the Death Wish sequels, he may not have wanted to, but he said, you know what, he was lucky to be getting the money at that stage in his career. That's what everyone was offering him. Charles Bronson was never one to harbor any illusions about who he was and what he did. Shortly after Death Wish's release, he was asked to explain his popularity, and he said, Don't ask me to explain a mystique. I'm just enjoying all this while it lasts. And in an interview with Roger Ebert, he explained, I'm only a product like a cake of soap, to be sold as well as possible. And he was in the same position. By the time we get to Death Wish 2, they offered him a lot of money, and nobody was offering him that much money. So when Golan and Globus offered him a big payday to do Death Wish 2, well, being a practical man and a working actor, he took it. And when they offered him an even bigger payday to do Death Wish 3, he took that too. To be fair to Bronson, I didn't know him. That's Alex Winter again, his co-star in Death Wish 3. I didn't ever have a heart-to-heart with him. We, we He was incredibly gracious 
to everybody. I mean, he loved us because we were these New York theater. We were very serious New York City theater people. And he loved that. He thought that was great. And he knew why we were there. He wasn't cynical. He didn't, you know, question why we you know, wanted some money and, and a summer job. I mean, he was the opposite of winner in almost every way. He wasn't uh, hierarchical. He wasn't authoritative. He wasn't aloof. But he was he seemed miserable. And and honestly, his I think his wife was either sick or had died recently. I don't know the chronology of when she died of cancer. And that was what whatever was going on at home was clearly weighing on him pretty heavily. And he made the occasional swipe to us if we were like on set waiting for a setup about how much he was getting paid and not like throwing like really like fraternal, not like throwing it in our face, but just like, he's like, you know, well, it's worth it because I'm getting a lot of money to be here. And we got to remember once we get to the sequels, Bronson is now in his sixties, you know, so that's an astonishing late age to be playing a, you know, a Rambo type figure. He was clearly unhappy with the work. He told the Los Angeles Daily News' Marilyn Beck that Death Wish 3 was... Too violent. Needlessly violent. To me, it was awful and ridiculous. But he didn't stop making Death Wish movies. Sensing that this was where the money was, and apparently that these were the only kind of movies his fans wanted to see him in, Bronson spent the decade mostly working for Canon Films, turning out either Death Wish movies or action movies in the Death Wish mold. Michael Atkinson refers to them as Bronson Jalopies. The 80s ones, which is like a great way to describe them. Because, like again, like no one's really, not a ton of people are seeing them, but they're a pretty steady market. There's enough people who are going to see them in Europe and enough people who are buying them on home video or renting them on home video. And so he definitely has, yeah, so he has this like sort of shtick. And he's clearly kind of miserable as he's going through it. But he sort of has given up at that point. But he never lost his desire to be more than Paul Kersey. But then also, like, when that whole thing collapses in the late 80s with Kenyatta Forbidden Subjects, he starts doing, expanding again, starts actually doing like dramas and stuff like that. Very, there's a very brief window where he's like in The Indian Runner by Sean Penn. Late in his career, he did a lot of interesting stuff, mostly for television. He did a film called uh, Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus, which is a family movie. Very excellent, sweet movie. Very atypical performance from him. He also did a TV movie version of The Sea Wolf, the famous Jack London story. He's excellent in that. That's a really good movie, too. So he was still trying to do some legitimate dramatic work later in his career. However, in the late 1990s, his health declined and he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2001. He died two years later at 81. It's very sad. I mean, and also like you throw in like the death of his wife, Jill Ireland, succumbs to cancer in the mid 80s, which is, you know, he loved Jill Ireland more than anybody in the world. So yeah, I would imagine that the 80s were not a very happy time for Charles Bronson, because, you know, even though he has a steady gig, it's just like, it's, it's, they're all the same, basically. They're all these kind of like very inexpensive Canon films movies, these Golden Globus movies that, you know, are kind of dumb. I'm sure, like he thought, thought like you know, I one of my first movies was a was a Tracy Hepburn movie. I probably I have more to offer than this. Bronson wasn't the only one who spent the rest of his career reckoning with Death Wish. Take the case of novelist Brian Garfield. I had been the, the victim of a very minor crime. That's Mr. Garfield on the podcast Movie Geeks United. You know, somebody had slashed the the top of my old convertible. I was mad, you know. <laughs> I thought, well, I'll kill the son of a bitch. You know, that was my first thought. <laughs> my second thought was, well, wait a minute, he's got a knife because he had to have something that he slashed the top with. Right. I don't really want to meet this guy. Right. But by the time I got home, I was half frozen, and I'm thinking, 
well, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm home now, you know. But what if somebody got mad and stayed mad? Mm-hmm. You know, just didn't come out of that, that temporary insanity. And that was the genesis of the book. The book is pretty clear. Uh, you know, the guy, of course, becomes disturbed. And it's the book is very, very clear that vigilanteism is not the answer. You know, the book is makes it pretty clear with that. So, again, Garfield saw the film as like a abomination, you know, a, a complete change of, of the book. He told Paul Talbot that when he first saw the film at a screening with his agent, he thought it, and this is a direct quote, sucked. Yet his agent replied correctly, but it's going to make a ton of money. I took my father-in-law to see the picture in Times Square, and it had been running for six or seven weeks by then. Hmm. And it was amazing. I mean, this is an afternoon you know, matinee performance, and the theater was packed, and there were people getting up on their seats and yelling, yeah, kill that guy. Mm. I've never seen that kind of reaction to a movie. Brian Garfield, who wrote it, he was horrified about what Michael Winter and Charles Bronson did to his precious book, because uh, he was like, again, it was not supposed to be an endorsement of vigilantism. And so he wrote a, a sequel called Death Sentence, where he catches up with Paul Kersey a little bit later, and he's just like, no, uh, I'm going to repeat, just make it even more explicit what I did in the first book, which is that I am against vigilantism. If you become a vigilante, it will eat away at you and destroy you. Death Sentence was published in 1975, while Death Wish was still playing in its original lengthy theatrical run. And that same year, he took an even bolder public stance against the film adaptation of his book. He made headlines for mounting a public campaign objecting to CBS acquiring Death Wish for a heavily promoted primetime premiere, and even offered to forfeit the $50,000 he would make from the sale if the network backed out of the deal. In the end, only two CBS affiliates, KPIX in San Francisco and KDKA in Pittsburgh, declined to air the film. But Garfield wasn't done. In addition to Death Sentence, he published another new novel in 1975, Hopscotch, which he told Variety was his, quote, penance for Death Wish, end quote. He described the book as, quote, a war of wits, not violence, in which no one gets hurt anywhere, end quote, and challenged himself to write an adventure story where the hero never picked up a gun. He also set up his own production company to handle the book's eventual sale of film rights and to create a deal where he would maintain some degree of control. The film adaptation of Hopscotch was released in 1980, and it did pretty well, but it was no Death Wish. Garfield tried to keep up with the series, and at the urging of Bronson's agent, he even submitted a story idea for Death Wish 4, but Bronson rejected it. Garfield told Paul Talbot, quote, No hard feelings, except that I feel fairly confident I'd have provided something a bit more entertaining than the garbage scripts they used in those sequels. Pardon my vanity. But it wasn't Garfield's fault. He was Dr. Frankenstein, and by that point, his monster was long out of the lab, wreaking havoc across the countryside. It had become, in a way, as dangerous as he had feared. And uh, on that note, I want to bring in my co-host, Mike Hull, here, because, Mike, we should talk a little bit about sort of vigilantism in New York in the wake of Death Wish and its popular success. I mean, there's no doubt that this movie brought a new kind of way of talking about vigilantism and and Mm -hmm. brought this kind of new, like, excitement uh, Bronson made it cool again, mm-hmm. I guess you might say. Mm-hmm. But this is based on, you know, a really old kind of theory. Near the end of, of the 1800s and the Indian Wars and all this kind of stuff, there were all these, and it's these quotes are attributed to many, many different people. But the basic idea was like, white people can never really be comfortable here, that we'll always be haunted by the ghosts 
of Indians, right? Of the of wow. the people that we tried to wipe off the face of this planet, you know? Right. There's lots of different versions of it and quotes and, and ways people said it. They were all written by white people <laughs> and supposedly spoken by Indians, you know? Of course. But but this kind of, of sense of guilt is kind of baked into this country and, and has been from the very beginning. And anybody who says that they don't have any sort of guilty feelings about it, maybe not guilt, maybe guilt is the wrong word, but some sort of a recognition of the pain that was caused you right. know, at the start of this country, right? Both with the Indians wars and of course with slavery, you know, and anybody who doesn't want to acknowledge that, who wants to just kind of take this like might makes right kind of conqueror's attitude, it has been very out of step, e even from the beginning of this country, with the way we talk about ourselves and the way we like to think about ourselves. I think that this kind of sense of, of vigilantism and, and self-protection is the way they describe it. We have to be violent. We have to do this because we have to protect ourselves and our women, for Christ's sakes, right? Meanwhile, right. like by the time white people actually met any of the natives of either of these continents, 90% of them were dead already from disease. From the very beginning, the, the deck is stacked in our favor. We've got guns. We've killed yeah. off most of our enemy before we ever met them. And and yet we still have this kind of, of overdramatic, you know, overblown culture of fear that ha can only be answered with violence. And you see all of these different cultural elements coming together, and they come together in a group like the Guardian Angels, you know, which was a self-appointed vigilante group. But the, the line from Paul Kersey to Curtis Lewa is like, is a straight line. Like it's not, you don't even, you don't even have to dot that bitch. Like that, that is one, one to one that he, Curtis Lee was, who was one of the founders of Guardian, of the Guardian Angels, like clearly saw himself as that, that he was put here to be a real life Paul Kersey and that his group would strike heart, would strike fear into the hearts of the criminal underworld of New York City and that they would be the kind of folk heroes that Paul Kersey is in the movie, even if it took faking incidents of attack and assault and uh, rescue in order to get that high profile. Where this 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 mindset really gets dangerous is when you take all of this kind of big mouth and big words and this kind of social support for it and then put that in the mind of an introvert. When you put that in like the Bernard mind Getz. like Bernard Getz. But that kind of dehumanization that you're talking about, like that just sort of became like part of the discourse in this era, right? I mean, you have to be able to do you're talking about teenagers you're talking about kids the same thing happened yeah. with the central park five right you have to be able to dehumanize right. Right. these people and make them sound like they can't be reasoned with right like they they yeah. are are savage and just kind of living off of instinct you know and to me i think that this kind of language got harder and harder and harder as the city got poorer and poorer and poorer and I think that this is another thing that we can look back in history and see and we'll be able to look into the future and predict, even as crime rates start to go down, even as the economy starts to get better, we still continue to see this kind of language get harder and harder and harder. And that ends up providing a script for guys like Curtis Sliwa and Bernie Getz to excuse the things that they want to do anyway.
In his book Starring New York, filming the grime and glamour of the long 1970s, Stanley Corkin writes of Death Wish and its imitators, quote, It is relatively easy to plot these films as part of the post-Lindsay era and as participating in the transition to the neoconservative-tinged policies of the Koch administration, which began in 1977 and lasted until 1989. The films portray the dashed hopes of the 1960s and early 1970s and offer visions of the city and its citizens that see the need for increased social control, even if that does not include an increase in government-sponsored means of enforcement. End quote. It wasn't out of school to wonder if Death Wish would inspire real-life vigilantes. Hell, Paramount Pictures, which released the first film, encouraged as much. Among their promotional suggestions for theater managers were special screenings for auxiliary police forces. They also recommended theaters sponsor safety programs on how to prevent a mugging and ways to prevent oneself if one does occur. In our last episode, we mentioned the New York Times' breathless on-the-ground report from a screening of Death Wish. A month earlier, the New York Post sent reporter Fern Marja Ekman to the Lowe's Theater, where she observed audiences, quote, drunk with glee at the film and wondered, quote, what's happening? Is this mass approval a symptom of New Yorkers growing bloodlust? Or are we indulging in a harmless bout of Walter Mittyism? End quote. She reached out to City Hall, where an aide to Mayor Abraham Beam responded, quote, I don't know why we should dignify this movie by making a comment. New York is the greatest city in the world. End quote. So she talked to moviegoers, where one audience member volunteered, I was mugged, and I'm glad he shot the mugger. I'm glad. One member of the audience, Gail Dunbar, a 16-year-old student at the Bronx High School of Science, called the film, quote, irresponsible, because it might be just what some unstable person needs to go out on a shooting spree, end quote. And much to Brian Garfield's chagrin, copycat violence was reported in the wake of the CBS broadcast of the film. One incident in Redondo Beach, one in Chicago, and one in Buffalo, in which the UPI reported, quote, a gunman described as a white man who killed three black men and critically wounded a fourth in execution-style shootings might have been motivated by the movie Death Wish, noting that the killings, all within a 36-hour period, began the Monday after the film's weekend television airing. There is something in a lot of people that would love to take take the law into their own hands, which is you know what you see when you get Bernie Getz in 1984. You know, ten years after the first Death Wish, man goes on the on the New York subway system, winds up shooting four black youths from the Bronx who allegedly tried to rob him. I wanted to kill those guys. I wanted to maim those guys. I wanted to make them suffer in every way I could. This is from Bernard Getz's videotaped confession, recorded on December 31st. 1984. If I had more bullets, I would have shot them all again and again. The old, my problem was I ran out of bullets, and I was gonna I was gonna gouge one of the guy's eyes out with my keys afterwards. You 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 you, you can't understand this. I know you can't understand this. That's fine. The Getz shootings were eerily similar to a scene in Death Wish, when Paul Kersey sits on a train waiting to be mugged, hiding his 32 revolver behind a newspaper. When that happens, you know, every newspaper is, is calling it like the Death Wish killing. It's, it's, it's a copycat killing. Merritt Koch initially came out swinging against Getz and like-minded individuals. Well, firstly, vigilantes are not heroes. They're not heroes. They're, they, you don't equate vigilante with hero. But he's also, he's very popular. 52% of New Yorkers in a, in a poll from the New York Times 
say that they endorse what he did. They applaud what he did, and they hope the best for Bernie Gatz. Gatz did the people of the city of New York a great favor. They're not kids. They're monsters. And if I were uh, Mr. Gatz, I'd probably do the same thing. Only I would aim to kill. And so, like Paul Kersey and Travis Bickle, Bernard Gatz became a folk hero. The NYPD set up a tip line to track down the so-called subway vigilante, and New Yorkers called in to voice their support. Here's Guardian Angels founder Curtis Sliwa in defense of Getz. Having been victimized before, having launched what was, and no question about it, even if this is to his detriment, a preemptive strike, that's exactly what it is, seeing the gleam in their eye, seeing the body language of the individuals, and just common sense reality. If you ask any of the street guys or gals, they'd have told you the same thing. When they get into that position, where they're surrounding you, where they're locking in, almost like in Top Gun, you know, where he's fighting the lock. And these guys were locking in on Getz, knew he was soft. They saw the turkey with the giblets, gravy, and stuffing ready to be consumed on Thanksgiving. But, oh, what a surprise they got, because they never anticipated him fighting back. When Getz was finally captured, a grand jury initially only indicted him on minor gun possession charges. Mayor Koch, who was up for re-election in 1985, changed his tune and praised the grand jury's decision not to indict further. Republican Senator Alphonse D'Amato similarly voiced his support, writing in a letter to the New York Times, quote, The issue is not Bernard Hugo Getz. The issue is the four men who tried to harass him. They, not Mr. Getz, should be on trial. End quote. The big difference is that, you know, in the movie, the subway, it's like at night, the subway is mostly empty. There's no one else in the car. He can get away with it. But it's not like crowded in midday, which is when Bernie Getz did it. He did it three days before Christmas. And like, an, I think an early afternoon, I mean, it's packed. There was a ton of people in the car. And they, and when he shot people, everybody, you know, everybody freaked out. They were horrified. They were terrified for their lives. And they all kind of like ran to the other side of the subway. So you don't really see that. I mean, he's, it's, it's almost too clean in Death Wish. He only goes out at night. No one can really see him. He, there's not a lot of people around when he's doing it. So there's never a part where like he's like, oh shit, am I being seen as a dangerous, as a menace to society at this point? He's it, it, They make it so it's, he's sort of, he gets off scot-free. He, there was never a kind of like a thing where he might be worse than the thing that he's trying to fix. I was at NYU when, when Bernie Getz did what he did. And, and I think I made a little short film about it because the disparity between what he was seeing and what actually was going on was so stark. You know, I lived, I think I lived a block away from him. He lived on 14th Street. I lived on 11th. You know, and there was crime and stuff, but it was, it was extreme. You know, it was downtown New York. It was mostly like Lou Reed fans and shit. You know what I mean? Like it, it wasn't, it wasn't teeming mobs of, of wild gangsters. After some inconsistencies were found in his story, Getz was re-indicted on more serious charges, including attempted murder. But he was only found guilty on the firearms charge. Director Michael Winner had already half-heartedly pushed back on the idea that his movies were pro-vigilante. Well, of course, the idea of vigilantes is awful. It's not a theme that I approve of, but the picture doesn't say go and get a gun and kill your local mugger. The picture says society has reached this extraordinary point where people are so desperate for law and order that anyone who does this would be applauded. Now, people did applaud the first film. I believe they'll applaud the second film. I think this is unfortunate, but it certainly shows a mad, a pathetic desire to clean up their lives at any cost. When Death Wish 3 was released in 1985, while the Getz story was still thriving, Winner was asked if he thought the subway vigilante was aping Paul Kersey. He replied, quote, We made Death Wish in 1974. Eleven years later, Bernard Getz shot people on the subway. He's a very slow learner if it took him eleven years to follow this film. 
He must be mentally retarded. I don't approve of what Mr. Getz did, but I have to say that if he has to shoot somebody on the subway, I wish he'd do it on the week we're opening. End quote. A more tactful Charles Bronson noted, I think they provide satisfaction for people who are victimized by crime and look in vain for authorities to protect them. But I don't think people try to imitate that kind of thing. I mean, you know, Death Wish is, I mean, I don't think it really inspired, like, the Guardian Angels. Or, I mean, maybe even Bernie Guess wasn't necessarily inspired. Because it's, like, ten years. And, like, the sequel, the second one, isn't even, like, that kind of movie. What Death Wish is, is it's basically just, like, pouring gasoline on, a, on an already raging fire. It's extremely, it's an extremely irresponsible movie. It's really surprising that there weren't a whole wide range of copycats. I think that most people who went to go see this, they were probably like, this actually makes me feel better in some way, and I'm not going to go commit these crimes. But I, you know, I live, one of the reasons it was so popular is because a lot of people were living in dangerous cities. Cities across America were in terrible, terrible shape. They were crime ridden. And so, you know, here's like this fantasy that you have of like someone who's going and taking the law into his own hands. So maybe the movie was just enough for most people. They weren't going to be like, well, isn't it great? That we can go out. We should we should definitely do this and go out with guns and shoot whatever. Or become one of the guardian angels. When Vincent Camby revisited Death Wish after his initial review, he wrote, quote, New York City, like all major American cities, has its problems. Bad bookkeeping, polluted air, rising costs, reduced services, high crime rates, a fleeing middle class. Now you might want to add a movie to that list. Michael Winner's Death Wish. It's a tackily made melodrama. But it so cannily orchestrates the audience responses that it can appeal to law and order fanatics, sadists, muggers, club women, fathers, older sisters, masochists, policemen, politicians, and it seems a number of film critics, impartially. Its message, simply put, is kill. Try it. You'll like it. And that message that New York is this dangerous hellscape where anyone who walks out of their front door at night will be mugged or raped or murdered within seconds, it stuck. Here's Alex Winter again. I was a New Yorker. I'd been working on Times Square since 1977 by that point, doing Broadway and Off-Broadway. You know, we were about to sort of plunge into the kind of Giuliani era in New York with just rampant police brutality, you know, largely, if not almost entirely directed at the black population. It was no joke. We were all New Yorkers. We were completely aware, even while we were shooting it, what we were doing. It was palatable to us, and not I'm not talking about like from a moral standpoint of making this movie, because there's no more argument for making this movie. <laughs> there is none. But I will tell you that, that the difference between what we were doing um, and the first one, just even in terms of how it would work on an audience, is like, it's a phantasmagoria. Most of the of the bad guys in this movie are like giant British stunt people. They're super white. The entire finale looks like we're attacking Britain's navy. I mean, they're like they're like these you know big naval officer looking stunt dudes. You know, they're all lobster red with little toques on, and they're supposed to be South South Bronx gangsters. So, so I mean, it really, it just jumped the shark so severely. But absolutely, fundamentally, these are white patriarchal fantasies, for sure. Watching Death Wish for the first time in 2021, Latoya Ferguson was struck by the nakedness of the rhetoric. They're calling him basically like a frou-frou, sissy, liberal every scene. And obviously because of that, that's why these things happened to his family, even though he wasn't even there to do anything in the first place. So like him being hardened wouldn't have changed what happened to his, his wife and his daughter 
but that's not going to, that's not the point. We have to move on, obviously, so we can get to him killing these bastards because look what they've done to the city. Stanley Corkin writes, quote, one of the more time bound sentiments is one that is repeated in Death Wish. As Paul is told by both his son-in-law and a fellow architect in his firm that one may work in Manhattan, but should live somewhere else. Such a comment reflects the trends of the preceding two decades, as the 1950s, 1960s, and early 1970s saw the decline of white-collar professionals in Manhattan, end quote. Corkin then explicitly draws a line from films like these to the gentrification of the coming decades, noting, quote, these films define a demographic nexus in the history of Manhattan, the moment between decline and renewal of the city's stock of middle-class and upwardly mobile professionals. Their sociological commentary is historically evocative, redefining the terms of the threat to the civilized, and in doing so, marginalizing the poor and the non-white residents of central Manhattan, end quote. And Corkin is right. It's hard not to read films like Death Wish, or its comic counterpart from the same year, Law and Disorder, as the stories of quote-unquote civilized white New Yorkers taking their city back, making New York great again, if you will. And well, over the past few years, we've seen that argument applied to the nation as a whole. The idea in like the rural communities is that is based on movies like Death Wish and then made worse by people like Donald Trump who tried to portray it as really bad. And, you know, Trump was talking about how like New York, like the, the crime rates are, are skyrocketing. You're just like, no, they're not. They're actually at their lowest that they've maybe ever been, I think. Like it's back to like the early 60s and the 50s where it's like not a really dangerous place to live. You will be fine. But people have this idea based on movies like that, that, you know, you come to the city, you'll get mugged right away. Everything's dirty all the time. And it's like, not really. This place is, especially New York, it's pretty rich. Even during, yeah, during, even during the pandemic, it was pretty clean. Especially Death Wish 3, which is like, well, it's in East New York for one thing, but people, that makes cities look terrifying. Like you can't walk out of your house without being assaulted by someone or like, you know, your loved one will be raped and then murdered and something like that. So that's all from these movies. Even after Rudy Giuliani like cleaned up New York, made Times Square, like, you know, a Disney a place for Disney stuff and M&M stores and stuff like that. It's still seen as like 1970s New York City, which it, it is absolutely not. People who are like watching Fox News or whatever, wherever you get your conservative talking points, like they're remembering the 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 scary, violent times of uh, New York City. And why should they believe it's going to change or it has changed? It's not like they live in this place, you know? This is Vincent Canby again from 1974, referencing another recent film about a decaying New York. Quote, For all its cold, macabre comedy, Little Murders was a movie obviously made by people not only concerned by the quality of urban life, but also aware of the complex problems that contribute to the daily frustrations and horrors. Death Wish is a movie produced by tourists, which is a point I'd make even if its director were not an Englishman, its executive producer, Dino De Laurentiis, an Italian, and its writer, Wendell May, is a resident of Los Angeles. For short-term fun, it exploits very real fears and social problems, and suggests simple-minded remedies by waving the American flag much in the fashion that former Vice President Agnew used to do." And that really is the territory we get into in the 1980s, because even something like Taxi Driver or Miss 45 has a certain authenticity and honesty and even handedness because it's made by a New Yorker. But the Death Wish movies and their imitators are just exploitation, preying on stereotypes and racial fear and cartoonish hyperbole. But if you're not a New Yorker and you see enough of those images, it starts to affect how you think about the city and all cities for that matter. You had to have this image in your mind, this kind of mythologized idea 
of this concentrated city from which there is no escape that is filled with, with you know, black and Puerto Rican people, which is what they were essentially accusing it of, and that they were essentially criminals. And that's a very effective image, and it's, it still is. It's used all the time to this day, and now, you, you know, now it's become the coastal elites, and it's always wherever these people aren't. I would say, like, one of the reasons that we have such a problem with guns in terms of, like, people who are like, I'm going to cling to my guns no matter what, or I'm going to buy guns every time it, it seems that, like, the NRA is going to be destroyed and, like, Biden's going to take our guns, all the, the gun sales to skyrocket, is in part, I mean, it, it would be in part thanks to movies like this because I think that, like, a lot of people are just like, I have this fantasy of me being a Paul Kersey and I'm going to get all of these guns. I'm going to buy all these guns and I'm going to brag about it. I'm going to take pictures of me posing with all my guns. And even though they're probably not going to really do anything with it, but they like, they like that fantasy. So, you know, possibly you could, you could argue, I think that, you know, death wish did have a deleterious effect on the American character because everybody wanted to be this guy. So everybody wants to be Paul Kersey. Everybody wants to be Charles Bronson. So that is one reason that you can't get rid of guns because people have this fantasy about themselves. And out of that fantasy comes an archetype. And it's a potent one. Of the lone man doing what the police cannot do. Protect him and his family and his community. And out of that archetype comes the guardian angels. And Bernard Getz. And Stand Your Ground Laws. And George Zimmerman. And Kyle Rittenhouse. Or is that too simple? Is that letting them off the hook? For people like Rittenhouse and Zimmerman, like, sure, you could probably blame media, but, you know, you have to blame perhaps whether it's the news they're watching or just propaganda in TV and film, not even necessarily vigilantism. It's like a, a cop is, uh, they can break the rules, you know, and that's good. And again, it's not even necessarily all that. It's just that they are, People who think that they're being oppressed or that they are not getting what they deserve when that's not the case. To blame the media for, in in this sense, I think, is just taking the blame away from these people who are doing these things, honestly. I think it's very easy to try to draw hard lines in the sand. And these are issues that are now in the age of the Internet really coming to a head which is the question of free expression. Before the internet, it was, you could, the culture wasn't so saturated that you could kind of get away with falling on one side or the other and you, you could almost sell either one. Like you could sell the idea that, you know, I don't know, the Colorado shooting sure seemed like two kids who'd been playing, you know, first person shooter games too much and they'd kind of detached themselves from an empathy for these people being real. So how can you not say it, it has some impact, you know, there's some, but do you want to censor those things? And, and then, you know, suddenly art is being censored and people don't have the option of not being psychotic and, and engaging with these things. These are really complicated questions that were, the internet has made like 20,000 times more complicated. But with, with Death Wish, for me, the problem I have with the films like this is that they are at their core made by people with a worldview that is, that is staunchly, I would say in Winner's case, almost legitimately psychotic. Right. It is. This is a racist, sociopathic, borderline psychotic perspective that the, is infusing every frame of that film. So, of course, that's going to impact certain people or trigger certain people, because that's what is it's you can't say, oh, it's just art because it isn't. It's, it's literally a, a, a manifesto by someone who staunchly believes these things.
Death Wish was, you know, a particularly resonant film. This is Jelani Cobb. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker, where he wrote an incredible piece about the George Zimmerman verdict called Blood on the Leaves. Usually it's like acceptable targets. Like if we think about the Liam Neeson, you know, taken movies where for whatever reason he could not keep up with his relatives. Those were all against foreign adversaries and people abroad. But the Death Wish film was set against the kind of urban backdrop, you know, of the American cities. It happened to be New York, but, you know, the 1970s, these American cities were all experiencing, you know, spikes in crime. And, you know, this is the lone white man who's going to bring some version of law and order, even if he has to go outside the law to do it. You know, it's the same kind of idea that defines the Western, you know, the pacification is kind of euphemism, but the pacification of the natives, except that it's played out in, you know, the urban tableau as opposed to on the plains. And so that's kind of what it is. Now, interestingly enough about that film is that even given the kind of racial implications and the politics of race and crime and Richard Nixon getting elected in 1968 in part on the strength of the slogan law and order, you know, which obviously had racial implications, Death Wish was still fairly popular among the black people I knew. Interesting. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, because it was the narrative that people still identified with, like the kind of singular badass, you right. know, which is a staple in American cinema. And so right. outside of that, there were still people who connected with it. And the other point, I think, is that it's possible to think of Death Wish as a kind of white man's reply to the black exploitation films of that era. You know, because the black exploitation film typically involved black people sticking it to the system, i.e., white people, i.e., particularly white men. And it was an inversion of the order, you know, at least the, the general order of power relations in American society, you know, so it was kind of black people's version of the outlaw narrative, you know, which is obviously popular in mythology. So in uh, kind of American mythology, so you have all of those things going on. And then there's Death Wish, which is the middle finger to all of that. And also, I think probably the last Part of it is this is like Death Wish is like a cornerstone for that era of apocalyptic New York cinema, you know, because, you know, Taxi Driver, The Warriors, you know, there's a whole you know, kind of subfield of cinema about the decline and demise of New York City. It's interesting that you mentioned the acceptable foreigner as a target in cinema. And we know what that usually looks like in American vigilante pictures, right? You also said Death Wish was popular among the black people you knew. Right. How did they see it? Did they see it differently? Was there another version of that trope available to them? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that I think that if you talk to people about the politics of the film, they would say one thing. But if you talk to people about the kind of action sequences, you know, one man who's outnumbered, you know, that's always the hero, the heroic narrative. You know, the hero is always outnumbered by his antagonists. And so I think people just kind of skipped that and that was what they connected to. But also the other thing that I think, you know, that's important is since we're kind of talking about it is the distinction between how that film operated or how black people processed that as film and how they processed it as reality. And 
you know, the closest incident to that, you know, people, you know, now might connect Charles Bronson to George Zimmerman, but really the kind of closest parallel to that was Bernard Goetz. Even as people began to retreat from him, uh, he pursued them and shot uh, them, including one person who shot in the back and another person who he said, you know, you don't look so bad, here's another, uh, which was a very like Bronson-esque kind of statement, uh, is that I, I don't want to defend myself. Self-defense is not the point. I want self-defense and then some. Uh, and so that was a, a major flashpoint with, you know, lots of racial antagonism in the city, you know, so. Right. As it appeared in fantasy was one thing and as it appeared in reality was something different. Well, in terms of that, the, the, the fuzziness of that line, like, you know, you, like you talked about these sort of New York hellhole movies and the way that New York and other big cities where they were set are, are painted in these films really was picked up by like right wing politicians and, and media. And that idea remained in place, even like as crime rates dropped, even to this day. Yes. Why do you think they have so much trouble letting go of these images? Well, I mean, I think that these images conform to, you know, a particular way that people see the world or these people see the world. And I also think that the most benign explanation of it is that these are things that happened at formative points in people's lives. And they just kind of have this worldview that's frozen from that point. You know, when you heard, you know, last election cycle, below actually the 2016 election cycle, when you heard Donald Trump talking about crime, you know, it was astounding because one, I mean, it was politically useful, but it was completely at odds with what the reality of crime in the United States was at the time. You know, we were experiencing historic lows. And if I'm honest about it, you know, I'm not completely absolved of this, you know, because having grown up in New York in the 1970s and 80s, you know, in a kind of small part of my brain freaks out every time someone on the subway pulls out a laptop. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I remember the first time I saw that in, in, and I was like, put that away. You're going to get yourself killed. <laughs> you know, but it's a different era. You know, we live in a different era of New York. Uh, and, you know, that's the most benign explanation. The, the, of alternate explanation is that this is pure cynicism and manipulation of people's fears. And what do you think is the what is the the the, the net benefit of that manipulation? Well, I mean, I think that people have known for a long time, you know, going in, all the way back to Machiavelli, that that frightened people are easy to manipulate or easy to control. And if you tell people that you'll keep them safe, then they uh, are more likely to be pliable. We've seen a small uptick in crime based on a few months of data that's been collected during a global pandemic, by the way. And it looks like this crime narrative is returning. Mm -hmm. what's, what's standing out to me more than anything else is the sort of gleefulness that media is bringing to the story. Have you noticed that same enthusiasm? And what do you think is behind it? I think that there are two groups that are enthusiastic about talking about the increases in crime during the pandemic. You know, one is unfortunately media uh, because the old, if it bleeds, it leads, ethic holds true, you know, and uh, these kind of things sell stories or sell papers rather, or I mean, get clicks at this point. And the other group that I've seen has been uh, people and political figures on the right uh, and adding kind of police unions inside that as well. 
uh, because one of the responses to the demands for police reform was in fact this very Bronson-esque kind of statement, which is, you know, we are the people keeping you safe and, you know, maybe you don't like the way we do it, uh, but we're uh, out here in the streets. And so one of the thought experiments I did last summer was to wonder or to ponder how George Floyd's death would have been processed had he been killed by a police officer in the time of a crime wave. Uh, would he have been a sympathetic figure? Let me just tell you this. Uh, George Floyd was about my height. I'm around 6'3", I'm a large black man. I am not generally inclined to expect public sympathy or people to look at, to view me in, as a, a human being in circumstances where they might be intimidated or might be scared or if something happens to me. A implicit calculation that underlies everything that I kind of do is people will be frightened of me very easily. I know that, you know, kind of operating in white spaces and so on. Like going back to George Floyd, you know, would that have played the same way in a time period with a high crime rate? Or would Derek Chauvin have looked like Charles Bronson or, you know, Jack Nicholson and A Few Good Men, the guy who is not going to pay attention to your effete rules. Uh, sorry, I'm, my testosterone levels are just too high to allow these uh, criminals to get away with the things they get with these bad guys to do the things that they want to do. And I'm going to break a few rules to make sure that people stay safe. Yeah, that's, that's a fundamentally American character. Well, to that point, as we've been working on this episode and sort of mulling these questions, I keep thinking about this line from the piece you wrote after the Zimmerman verdict. Um, quote, there's fear that the verdict will embolden vigilantes, but that need not be the concern. History has already done that. Mm-hmm. You know, and as we look at that history, as we look at Bernard Goetz and George Zimmerman and Kyle Rittenhouse and so on, do you think vigilantism has been romanticized in the culture, that that media like this contributed to that and sort of created some some heavy, like, you know, real-world implications? Absolutely. But it's a very selective vigilantism. So uh, if we kind of dig into the archives of New York history, you know, these are like the deep cuts here. And we talk about Bernard Goetz. You know, that's one figure who was a vigilante. But we talked about Larry Davis, you know, who was an African-American who shot I upset multiple, very many New York City police officers who he claimed were coming uh, to his house to kill him. His story had always been that he was selling drugs for the NYPD and that when he was going to expose people, uh, these police came to his house to kill him. He shot multiple police, escaped from an apartment in an apartment complex in the Bronx had some other encounter, he shot more police and then got away. And there was a citywide, really statewide manhunt for him. But if you were talking just in terms of narrative, there are corrupt cops and there's a whole other 
genre of cinema we could talk about with you know the corrupt New York City cop, you know, the classic being Serpico. But there are corrupt cops. There have been commissions on corruption in, in, in NYPD. The NYPD has a very long history with corruption. It is not beyond anyone's imagining that police officers could have had people selling drugs for them. Uh, and this is a person who is taking the law into his own hands and only shooting people who are in, who are in, in effect, who are in fact forcing him to break the law. And so that's one narrative of vigilantism that we have never seen, you know, or we would not see, uh, unless you're talking about rappers and their version, their renditions of Larry Davis's uh, exploits. And so I think there is, but if we're talking specifically about the white vigilante, um, he's a centerpiece in American mythology. You know, Robert Warshaw's you know, famous essay, The Gangster is Tragic Hero, where he kind of grapples with these questions about the lawbreaker or the rule breaker and the, the way that they fit into American society and so on. And, you know, the vigilante is right there. You know, he's right there at the center of American mythology. Do you think that with the kind of splintering that we are seeing in culture like right now, in American life right now, and, and the sort of inability for people to communicate, are we going to see more Kyle Rittenhouses? Are we going to see more of this sort of the, the, the vigilante in American life? Yeah, I mean, I think that we have a climate that is prepared to lionize a certain type of vigilante. And unlike previous times, well, I mean, there were tabloids in, in the uh, Charles Bronson, you know, Death Wish era of New York City. Uh, but now there's a whole ecosystem, you know, online, cable news, social media people who can foment support, you know, for these kinds of actions. And I think that actually makes it more likely that these kinds of things will continue. I'm in Times Square, which is heavier with street and foot traffic than it's been in over a year. The city's trying to get back on its feet, cranking up tourist campaigns, announcing grand reopening plans, trumpeting Broadway's return. And here in Times Square, in early May, three people were shot. Two women and a four-year-old girl, underscoring one of the biggest challenges facing the city at this unprecedented moment. You see, violent crime is on the rise again in New York City. According to the New York Times, quote, the major rise in gun violence in the city began in 2020, after a period in which violent crime dropped to its lowest levels in more than six decades. Now, even as New York City emerges from the pandemic, the spike that began as the virus spread last spring has shown no sign of receding. As of the second weekend in May, the city had recorded 505 shooting victims, the most through that point of any year in the last decade, end quote. This spike in shootings and murders is not hard to explain. The city went through a prolonged trauma in 2020. Psychological, emotional, economic trauma. Lives and jobs were lost in the pandemic. People became increasingly desperate. Now, the Times is careful to note that these tallies, quote, remain far below the peak levels of the 1980s and 1990s, when the city recorded more than 2,000 killings at times, end quote. But what's important to remember, both when thinking back on that time and thinking about this one, is how much bullshit white entitlement and victimhood 
were and are wrapped up in those narratives. Because in the 1970s, violent crime in New York, the shootings, the stabbings, the rapes, the arson, was disproportionately confined to black and brown communities, with the exception of muggings. That was the crime that came into white neighborhoods, into white public spaces like parks and subways. So that was the epidemic we heard about. After the city's deep cuts into social services of the early and mid-1970s and the economic shifts that were plaguing the nation, people of color were losing their homes, their jobs, their neighborhoods, their lives. White people were losing their wallets. And movies like Death Wish and its sequels and imitators made this a capital offense. And that's what's so worrisome about the rise in crime in New York and elsewhere, and how it's being framed in mainstream, but especially right-wing media. Because there are many more guns now, both in the streets and in the homes of citizens, some of them frightened, some of them emboldened, some both. And the front pages of the New York Post, the talking heads of Fox News, the blowhards of right-wing radio, they're all at full volume, warning New Yorkers, and more importantly, the rest of the country, that New York is on its way back into the toilet, just like in the bad old days, just like in Death Wish. In other words, we're sitting on a keg of dynamite out here, and it's going to take delicacy and nuance and thoughtfulness to fix ourselves. And you know what? Maybe that's the most worrisome part of all, because we as a city and as a country, we don't really do any of those things all that well right now. From Fun City, I'm Jason Bailey. Fun City Cinema is inspired by the forthcoming book, Fun City Cinema, New York and the Movies That Made It, out on October 26th from Abrams Books and available now for pre-order. Fun City Cinema is written and hosted by my friend Jason Bailey. And produced and co-hosted by my friend Mike Hole. Special thanks to today's guests. Jelani Cobb is a staff writer at The New Yorker and co-editor of the books The Essential Kerner Commission Report and The Matter of Black Lives, writing from The New Yorker. Both are available now. You can follow him on Twitter at Jelani9. Latoya Ferguson has bylines at AV Club, Variety, and many more, and is the managing editor of RondaRousey.com. She also co-hosts the Angel on Top and Empire Diaries podcast. You can follow her on Twitter at LaFergs. Matt Preget is a journalism professor with bylines at Uproxx, Vulture, The Guardian, and Polygon. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt Preget. Paul Talbot's books, Bronson's Loose on the set of the Death Wish films, and Bronson's Loose Again on the set with Charles Bronson are available in both physical and ebook formats and are highly recommended. You can also hear his audio commentaries for several Charles Bronson films from KL Studio Classics. And Alex Winter's latest documentary, Zappa, is now available on Blu-ray, DVD, and VOD. It's also streaming on Hulu. You can also see him in Bill and Ted Face the Music, and you can follow him on Twitter at Winter. Additional special thanks to Mac Welch, who played Charles Bronson for us today. And if you like this podcast and would like to hear more of them, you can support it on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash funcitycinema. 
You'll also get early access to shows, additional writings, and bonus episodes, including the full Alex Winter interview from today's show. And you can also rate and review the podcast on your favorite app. It really does help. Our website is www.funcitycinema.com. You can listen to episodes, read show notes, and order your copy of Jason's book. If you'd like to see some of the clippings and images referenced on today's episode, you can follow us on Instagram at funcitycinema. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at brainwashedlib, and Jason is at jason-bailey. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them. Goodbye.